0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the podcast today featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, with another special Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is halo of light, so let's find the silver lining in this pandemic. On Dr. Doctor, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. We're normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, but this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the practical ethical implications uh, being examined daily by some physicians uh, during this pandemic. So our guests come uh, notably from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Sometimes we might abbreviate NCBC. We have Dr. Joseph Meany, first of all. He's the president of the NCBC with a PhD in bioethics from the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Rome. Before coming to the NCBC, he worked for 21 years for Human Life International, going to only 81 countries, not quite as many as John Paul II, but 81 countries to spread the gospel of life. We also have with us today Dr. Joe, is it Zelot? Zayla. Zayla. Yep. It is. Zalot has been a staff ethicist at the NCBC since July 2017. Prior to that, he served as regional director of ethics and spiritual care for Mercy Health in Cincinnati and as an associate professor of religious studies and mm-hmm. ethics at an excellent seminary, uh, Mount St. Joseph University in Cincinnati. Well, isn't there a seminary associated with that?
1: Well, actually, that's, the, that's a small independent school. The, the Athenaeum of Ohio is there. And I actually taught there. Uh, okay, that's good. Well. I so thought this, there might be a link. Different. It's good. Different. So,
0: Joseph and Joe, welcome to Dr. Doctor. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, for all of these uh, bonus episodes, we have not done a trivia question. We did for some of the initial ones. Joe specifically requested one, so I have accommodated him. So, here is your bonus medical trivia question. One of the things we're going to talk about today are ventilators. So I thought a ventilator-related question would be appropriate. Well, until 1952, the only place ventilators were used was in the operating room. But that year, there was an outbreak of a specific infectious disease in Copenhagen, Denmark, that changed the course of medical history. What was this disease that resulted in the rapid and heroic work that changed the course of history and led to the development of the ventilator and the intensive care unit as we now know it? you have to stay tuned to the end of the show to find out the answer. So first question, you know, I've heard many commentators during this pandemic say, wow, everything has changed now. Well, maybe many things have changed, but Joseph, how has ethics changed because of this pandemic?
2: Huh. Well, I think people are looking for excuses uh, to do what they want to do. I think, uh, you know, we all know that the truth remains the truth. Uh, there's nothing, nothing more immutable than the truth. It's, it's, uh, it's something very beautiful. And, and that's one of the best things about it is that it just stays there. But it is true that when we get into a crisis situation or there's some kind of new circumstance that comes up, there's always a crowd of people who are very interested in changing the rules, bending the rules, uh, making, you know, new provisions, etc.
0: It's that old thing that uh, Rahm Emanuel said, never let a crisis go to waste. Exactly right. And uh, unfortunately, uh, often with ethics, it's the people who believe in a, a different ethic than us. Um, Joe, how would you answer that same question? Have, have ethics changed now?
1: Well, well, ethics haven't changed, certainly, as, as Joseph said. But I think the real danger here... Uh, is when people say, quote, everything has changed, is that this is really code for saying that we should abandon any theological or, or moral considerations in healthcare decision-making. As we at the NCBC have been looking at some of the model triage protocols that some, of the, some healthcare systems are using, one of, this, one of these model policies actually says, and this is almost a quote, it said, uh, clinicians should not incorporate beliefs or ethical principles that are not specifically addressed in the protocol, unquote. So, in other words, what it's saying is, leave your conscience, leave your moral convictions at the door. And my fear is that people will use this pandemic or use this everything has changed language to further argue that, hey, you know, no more ethics, particularly Catholic health, like uh, Catholic ethics, uh, when making healthcare decisions.
0: But there is a conscience that was not left at the door, and that was the conscience of the people that put together those darn guidelines. <laughs> so, why does their conscience matter, but other people's doesn't? That's something that always always bothers me now i grew up watching star trek and i've recently watched uh, i don't know 200 and some episodes through so many seasons with my sons one thing that you hear the vulcans commonly say is the greatest good for the greatest number and that sounds good to people but it's not good so joseph can you go into why that sounds good but is not really good because when we embrace an ethic that isn't objectively right It's not because we want to do wrong. It's because we perceive a good in it. So what is the perceived good in the greatest good for the greatest number?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's very closely related to Machiavelli's principles, right? That uh, if you have a good end, something good that you want to achieve, you can do all kinds of evil things to get there. Well, of course, it's a real problem because the greatest good for the greatest number it literally involves perhaps injustice, perhaps uh, doing something that is clearly evil, that good may result from it. And the church has always been so clear, you know, even if you have good intentions, even if you have a good end, the means that you use have also to be good. And if you kind of have this, um, this exceptional attitude, right? Well, you know, we can bend the rules here, we can do this there, you know, that, that slippery slope, is something that really exists. I mean, sometimes people joke about it, but it's so true.
0: Well, and when you say joke about it, you're right. Those people who are against us, they just kind of use it as a punching bag and they don't think it even deserves an answer. Yeah. Why do they treat
2: it that way? Because they don't have a good answer? Probably. But, but the other thing too, they, they look at it, how does you know, once you're on the slippery slope, Uh, One of the terrible things about it is you don't even notice. I mean, I was was talking about doctors, talking with doctors in, in Belgium who had performed euthanasia. And one of the things that they said was this, the first time I did a euthanasia, it really bothered me. And the second time it bothered me again. But, you know, I've done dozens and hundreds of them and now... It just doesn't bother me anymore, you know, and, and I'm doing them on more people for more reasons, etc. And they don't even notice the fact that they have anesthetized their consciences, that they, they, they no longer even see the evil that they're doing. At first they could see it, you know, but now it's become just this, this very easy slope that they have just walked right down.
0: Joe, how does the greatest good for the greatest number, which might be considered utilitarian ethics, how does that differ from the Catholic teaching on the common good and solidarity?
1: Well, I have to start by saying, Tom, I really love the fact that you brought up Star Trek because (laughs) I— I, when I was teaching, whenever we were talking about utilitarianism, I always used Mr. Spock in in the, the movie Wrath of Khan, where he gives his life to save the it was like did something with the matter antimatter engine or whatever the heck it was. Yes. And when Kirk goes running down and says, Spock, why did you do this? He said, you know, he, he said that the, the the great of the uh, the good of the many outweighs the good of the one.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And and so and that sounds very you know it sounds very, yeah, it sounds very very noble, but you run into into problems as as unless uh, it's the one choosing to sacrifice ex- himself exactly exactly what Spock did was very noble, and in fact, we'll see this uh there there have been stories of people who have heroically said, "Don't give me a ventilator, you'll know, give it to yes. someone else, and that's heroic virtue but but that's you know that's his choice to make versus um
0: imposing it on someone
1: exactly so uh, going, you know, getting to your question about the common good and solidarity. Well, the common good, and I'm just using the the U.S. bishops' uh, definition of the common good from the ethical and religious directives, and they say the good is the common good is realized when economic, political, social conditions ensure protection for the fundamental rights of all individuals, of and all. that's and that's the key, all right? So the common good is realized when our fundamental rights are upheld and respected. And utilitarian um, decision-making can go against that, um, as, as, as Joseph mentioned. Also, solidarity. John Paul II defines solidarity as committing oneself to working for the good of the other. And so, you know, what, how do you understand that principle in light of some of the, you know, some of the issues that could come up with, uh, with utilitarianism?
0: And, and we're going to come to apply this to some specific uh, circumstances. Uh, what are the, the main categories and we'll cover them in more depth later, but what are the main categories of questions you are getting now at the NCBC during this pandemic?
1: I think that the, they come, the, there's two different groups. So from healthcare professionals and administrators, the questions we get are, what do we do about triage protocols? What do we do about, you know, ventilators and this, that, okay. how do we make these decisions? And then the calls from the lay people are really, they're really end-of-life questions, kind of the standard end-of-life okay. question that we get. and We get a lot of them, but they're standard end-of-life questions, but specifically in the context of COVID-19.
0: Okay, and we'll, we'll get to those. So that, that's good for me to know, uh, and I'm glad those questions. In fact, are your lines, uh, Joseph, are your lines busier now than the average, less busy or about the same, just the topics have changed?
2: You know, so it's very interesting because at the very beginning of the crisis – our calls actually went down. Uh, And I think it was just because people were so stunned. They didn't even know how to react. And then they were like, you know, just whatever. And then now uh, we've had a surge in calls because uh, a lot of people have been seeing all the stuff that the NCBC has produced on our website and new yes. information, et cetera. And they're like, Oh yeah. Oh, and this is a new question. And that's another question. Well, gosh, I never thought about this question. So a lot of healthcare administrators have been contacting us in ways that uh, they, well, in numbers that they don't usually do.
0: I'm very happy to hear that the administrators are calling you as well. That, that bodes well, I would think. Um, I learned about the concept of triage growing up in the 70s, watching the television show MASH. And of course, I understood that I was in the army for eight years. I understood the concept of triage and expectant waiting, etc. But now triage is apparently reality. It has been in Italy. I'm not sure how much it is in New York City. You might be able to comment on that. But explain what the term means uh, and how it's being used now in our country.
2: Ah, well, you're in luck because I'm half French. Ah, triage. (laughs) It comes from the French, right? So to divide in threes. And so traditionally- Divide in
0: threes. Oh. Yeah.
2: So (laughs) traditionally, uh, triage was that, right? There were the patients who were going to recover no matter what you did. So you just leave those aside. The patients who were not going to recover no matter what you did. And so you couldn't really help them. So you put them aside. And the last group that could recover if you acted urgently And those were the ones that you would focus your attention on in the triage. So divide into threes.
0: I love that. Very good. What is the relationship then, Joseph, between triage and rationing? Or are they two different things?
2: Well, you know, triage is a very extreme form of rationing. So rationing exists constantly. You know, there, there is no unlimited good except for God. So in, in some sense, you know, there is never an infinite amount of anything that we need. Uh, and so we, we have to limit, we have to ration in some way. But, but medical triage is really uh, meant for extreme circumstances and that's why the reference to MASH, right, the reference to battlefield medicine, right, where right. you have tons and tons of wounded people and just not enough healthcare professionals to help them all uh, in a timely fashion. So you have to make some very heart-wrenching choices who can we help and who can't we help? And unfortunately, what's happening now with this pandemic is in certain sections of the world, such as Italy, but also some parts of the United States, such as New York, um, these these hard decisions are coming up. So, you know, the latest news from the front lines that we've received, uh, we work very closely with Catholic Health Services of Long Island. So that's a Catholic Health Service just outside of New York City. And what they've told us, I mean, they they discussed their triage Protocols with us, they said, Look, you know, we still have a few machines, we still have a few ICU beds, we're making room in our hospitals, but we're filling up and we think that we might get to the point where we're going to have to activate these protocols. So it's, you know, it's kind of like on the cusp. They haven't quite got there yet, but they're close.
0: So I got an email today from one of my trusted um, CMA doctor friends somewhere else in the country. I'm not going to reveal the person or the state. But he said this, and this goes right into what we're talking about. He said he had a rather chilling exchange yesterday with a member of the physician advisory group he sits on for their state health department. And he said in the conversation, certain members of the committee started discussing how older people might need to be booted off a ventilator to give it up to a person who has more life ahead of them. And he said the discussion readily went into utilitarian arguments And one of uh, the people on that committee then sent an email that said, well, I don't really want to give ventilators first come, first serve. Um, I want to make a decision whether we should take people off a ventilator if a younger, more robust individual needs one. And they point out the fact that in Italy, where they were so overwhelmed in ICUs, that the doctors are expending all their mental energy on taking care of patients. They don't want to have to go through the mental gymnastics of figuring out how to Uh, ration ventilators. And so they came up with a scoring system that includes age. So something I have noticed is that when we physicians get bogged down and we don't have much computing power left in our brain, we tend to resort to the highest level of our ethical training, which is usually pretty low and often utilitarian. How can you help us to avoid that? And secondly, what are appropriate criteria for ventilator rationing?
2: Sure. Well, maybe I'll start and then then Joe can continue. But uh, we think very strongly at the National Catholic Bioethics Center that you have to use objective clinical criteria, right? So it's a tragic situation, a very hard choice needs to be made, and we have to be especially cognizant of the fact that prejudice, even unconscious bias can play a role here. As you're saying, people are stressed, they're not thinking very clearly, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen if they don't have a very clear, very objective way to make these decisions is that you know, there's, there's gonna be a certain amount of just discrimination that takes place. And, and so we believe you know, things like the SOFA principles, right? The systematic organ failure assessments or the Apache scores, things like that, that you know, have a real kind of clinical basis, that's very good. But you know, there could be an 80-year-old person who has a better sofa score than a 30-year-old person. There could be a disabled person who has a better score than a younger person. But you know, the point of the matter is we all have the same equal human dignity. And as Catholics, and I think just as, as just, you know, people who have a, a sense of humanity, right? Human rights, we have to look at this as a human rights issue we want people to be treated fairly now sure we don't want to be you know discriminating and in all kinds of different ways but but you know these arguments are a very slippery slope to saying oh wow old people we don't really need to give them health care you know disabled people they don't really need this health care or another person who has you know whatever socially undesirable condition maybe we'll put them to the back of the line it really goes very quickly into, into a situation in a place that we don't want to be. But if you stick to something that's very, very objective, you know, the clinical criteria, can we save this person? Can we not save this person? Is this person more in need than this other person? Then those things can help us to be fair and to treat everyone as equally as possible.
0: You know what those specific criteria are?
2: Yeah, so Joe, go ahead.
1: A, a specific criteria in terms of what, Tom?
0: a ventilator rationing, SOFA score, other things like
1: that? Well, yeah, well, the, what we would say is, is make sure that there are objective clinical criteria that you're using Using those.
0: What are they? What are the criteria? Because if age isn't one, what are the criteria for deciding?
1: Yeah, oh, if, I, go ahead. Well,
2: I mean, you have the different organ systems, you know, and how they're functioning. So, you know, how is the cardiovascular output uh how are their kidneys working? You know, what is their situation in terms of uh all the different organ systems in their bodies? And you know what tends to happen is that they're shutting down one by one, you know, and, and they have a certain sense of like, can we save this person or is if they are spiraling out of control and it's it's just not gonna work, you know, no matter what we do. So when we you're other- talking
0: about your three triage groups, is this further subdividing the one group that will only survive with intervention into those who have the greatest likelihood of surviving and those who have a lower likelihood of surviving, regardless of age, disability, etc.
2: Correct. Yeah. Okay. You, that helps. You're trying to find the sickest people that you can save. Uh, so in a certain sense, you're, you're putting it as a higher priority the sicker people, but you're, you're kind of drawing the line at the point where you're thinking, okay, but this person is so sick that we can't really save them. Unfortunately, we need to give them all the care that we can in terms of palliative care and other things, but we need to save the ventilator for, for the sickest person that is capable of surviving with some help. So I like that. So if I've got a
0: visual in my head of the, the sickest to the, the least ill The top third or top group of the sickest won't survive no matter what. Bottom group is going to survive, is going to survive no matter what. So then we want right what's at the cusp of those who won't survive. They're the ones who should get the ventilators. In what circumstance, Joe, should somebody be taken off a ventilator or can someone be ethically taken off a ventilator?
1: Well, it's funny to ask that question. I was just having a conversation with one of our uh, nurses who works part time with us uh, at the NCBC. We were talking about that, and she was getting into medical criteria that's way over my head. But she was she was saying that you know, she was working. She had worked uh, in the ICU with respiratory patients for years, and she was talking. Um, she's actually writing a uh, an article using. Defined objective medical criteria, even apart from COVID nineteen, that ICU teams would use to say, "Okay, this person is beyond the point where a ventilator or anything is really going to be able to help them." So, to the, to the extent that the healthcare professionals have that have that information, they have objective criteria that, under normal circumstances, this you know the ventilator isn't going to be helpful for this person. Um, I think in those in those situations, in those contexts, you could make the decision that this person's not going to be aided by the ventilator. Let's give it to someone who, um, who is going to benefit from it.
2: So go ahead, Jason. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, one of the points that, um, you know, for taking a person off a ventilator, I mean, the, the most important criteria of course is to get get informed consent, right? To try and and uh, if the patient themselves cannot uh, communicate to get it, for, but when do you seek that informed consent? When you think that basically this person is on the point of dying, and and you're not going to be able to save them, despite the fact that they're on the ventilator, and you think that you might still be able to save another patient with that same ventilator, and that it's not really useful for that person. However, uh, if that person still has a chance of surviving, you know, I don't see any real ethical way to take them off that ventilator because you know that that's what is keeping them alive and it's it's what you know could save them. Uh, and another person's need, you know, in a sense comes second, right? This it is first come, first serve. And and there's no real justice to taking one person off and having them die when they could have survived to put another person on to have them survive okay, well, you're, you know, you're trading lives there, but it's not very just. However, if the person is dying, despite the fact that they're on the ventilator, and it's very clear that we're not going to be able to save them, then at that point, I think it it makes sense to ask for their consent. Um, It make you know, and and if that consent can't be obtained, and you get to that, you know, final, final point, then there might be a possibility of still taking them off um, you know, with a lot of safeguards being put into place. You know, it's, it can't be sort of a, a whim decision or anything like that. You know, it has to be very much decided and shown. But, but, you know, it's, it's one of these last resort type of activities.
0: So, with objective respiratory function criteria involved. Yes, Th- that makes sense again. Now, one of these doctors who was writing about uh, working in the ICU and how to Ration Ventilators, said that uh, she read a comment by an Italian doctor, and she said she had uh, shifted her mind moving from patient-centered care to community-focused care in these difficult decisions. What's wrong with that approach? Hmm, interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, communities don't have a soul, right? Uh, Patients do. (laughs) Uh, You, there's a lot of people who love humanity, but they hate their neighbors. Um, <laughs> you know, yes, yeah, so true. It's, it's a lot easier to, to be very benevolent towards an abstract cre- creation, but it's, it's rather difficult to, you know, to love the people that are near us and to serve them. But, um, sir, sure, I mean, we do have to serve communities, and we have to, to put in public health measures, etc. But medicine is a very personal activity right? It's you and the patient. It's, it's, it's something that's, that's very um, well, I mean, there's a, there's a concept to medicine where it's, it's, it's almost a ministry, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly from the it's Catholic, right? I mean, there, there's a, there's a, a sacred bond there between the physician and the patient. There's a trust. Uh, so I don't think you can really say, I'm going to stop thinking about patients and I'm going to start thinking about, you know, cohorts of people or communities. Uh, you have to think about both certainly, but clearly the patient is more important than some abstract concept.
0: I've heard some people say that in these triage protocols, a healthcare professional should have priority in getting treated so that they can get back to treating other patients. Is that a criterion or is it not?
1: Actually, yeah, we, we have said that in our, our FAQs, our frequent asked questions on our, our website, that yeah, that is a, that is a consideration uh, on a couple of different levels. One of them is, as, as you said, Tom, a healthcare professional is a person who has great value in bringing other people back to health. And in fact, a healthcare professional or anyone who has survived COVID-19 has developed the antibodies, so they you know it's actually a lot safer for them uh, to be able to go in and, and, and treat those who are ill. Another way of thinking about that as well too is I'm going to guess that most healthcare professionals who developed COVID-19 developed it because they were treating sick patients. And in a sense, there's, there's a sense of, um, you might want to even call it restorative justice, uh, that type of argument for that person. So um, I think it, it, there are situations where it can be valid to, um, to, to look to treat uh, healthcare professionals.
0: So this is different somehow than quality of life arguments or um, productivity of an individual arguments?
1: Oh, absolutely. It, it's different. It, it's recognizing... That um, this person, particularly with this pandemic, this individual has specific skills that are of great value to treating, well, treating others and to treating community as the community as a whole. Absolutely,
0: Joseph. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. It 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 sounds right. I'm just trying to make sure that there is an essential difference. Or distinction between that and looking at people who have, uh, you know, the ability to do more things in their lives than somebody else, you know, a more useful part of society, you know, as somebody might judge versus someone else.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, the points that we make, right. Is that you wouldn't put necessarily a healthcare professional at the top of the line just because they're a healthcare professional. But in terms of like, you know, if you have to, um, make a tiebreaker, you know, uh, <laughs> There, there are certain considerations that might come into play. Another one that we came in for was pregnant mothers, and the reason for that, of course, is that they're two-person. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you know, there are a few things like that which uh, do make a little bit of sense because there's um, there's a, an element of justice involved, and and I think the, what Joe said in particular about the, the fact that these people probably became sick themselves because they were putting themselves in harm's way to treat other patients, you know, and, and to, to be on the front lines of this does in fact uh, give them a certain priority in terms of treatment.
0: Very good. Well, let's move on to something that might not take a long time to discuss, but that is we've heard some places uh, making every COVID ICU patient a do not resuscitate patient. What have you heard about that? You know, the DNR order.
2: Yeah, so we've heard some really really scary proposals. And, and as you were saying really at the beginning of this, right, that people have come felt that this crisis enables them to make some pretty scary proposals. Uh, to say, wow, we're in a crisis situation, therefore we should change the rules. Well, that's one of those really scary proposals. The idea is, look, We want uh, to treat the greatest number, et cetera, in the safest way possible. And you know what? These people are going to die anyway, so we're going to give them all a mandatory do not resuscitate order. Well, of course, it violates so many ethical principles. I mean, the first one is informed consent, right? I mean, the person didn't ask for do not resuscitate order. It's kind of the ordinary care that is normally provided. So why should we suddenly decide that we can mandate that for everybody? But another point. Uh, that I think is interesting that is brought up is, look, well, you know, we may not have enough personal protective equipment, the PPE that gets mentioned a lot, you know, the masks and the gowns and the rest of it, and that uh, it'll take a long time to gown up and get ready. And we might be using up a ton of this PPE uh, just to try and resuscitate a person who's going to die anyway. Well, that might be true, right? In some cases, it could be appropriate to put a DNR uh, in place for a patient. Because, you know, at this point, you can't really resuscitate them, they're dying. And, and you know, it doesn't make it much sense. That's currently the case, you know, that that's what our, our current ethics says. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying, we want to just put a blanket order out there, because we want to, you know, protect our healthcare professionals. Well, yes, we do want to protect our healthcare professionals. But at the same time, you know, there's a duty to treat, there is a duty, uh, a certain nobility really, about the healthcare profession, that, that you are putting your life at risk, you know, by, by dealing with infectious and, 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 uh, and patients who, you know, might, might be putting you at risk. But that's part of the nobility of the profession. And, and we can't just, you know, rule that out 100% because there's a pandemic.
0: To switch gears, everything you hear says that we probably are going to have some amount of social distancing until a vaccine is developed. And we don't even know for sure if there will be a successful vaccine. There may well be. We talked last night with a public health uh, infectious disease doctor. There are some things about coronavirus that make it very likely because you make um, neutralizing antibodies against it. So that's a good thing. So I have a couple of questions tied in with that. Number one, this whole thing of social distancing. I've become very interested in, in fact, I'm writing an article with two of my colleagues on whether the treatment of the pandemic is worse than the disease of the pandemic because of so many other aspects of it. And so what are the ethics related to mandatory social distancing? I think I saw an an FAQ on your website related to that.
1: Yeah there's a lot of things um, to be to be discussed about it and uh, Tom I think you're absolutely right and it's a question that we've had uh, that we've discussed uh, at the NCBC is 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 the the cure worse than than the illness and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens you know when the country quote unquote does reopen what are going to be the well the suicide rates what's right. going to happen with uh mental health uh you know referrals and people seeking all of that and we just don't know um there's also the you know on the spiritual side i i assume tom and, and joseph uh, you probably like me haven't been able to uh, to go to mass for a number of weeks. And although, you know, you, you see it on TV, and actually the, I, I have to admit that the, you know, the televised masses have actually been pretty good, but there's something missing there. And, and you know, administering the sacraments and, and all of those different things, and there's a price to be paid for it. Um, what that's going to be, um, I don't know. But then, you're, then you have the question of, okay, well, we want to reopen the economy, um, but we want to do it in a way so that it's, it's beneficial for people in terms of their work and their livelihoods and everything else. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we don't um, do things too quickly or we don't have the resources and the structures in place to, to keep people healthy. So it's, it's, it's that balancing uh, that I'm, you know, it's, it's a tough question for our public authorities.
2: Yeah, and I would just add, uh, it was very interesting because I was with uh, the Bishop of Lourdes uh, just as this was all starting up. And he said something so interesting. He said, you know, um, it's so unchristian to isolate oneself. Uh, Christianity is all about uh, communion right getting together with others uh, working for others solidarity you know and having this kind of uh, mutual relationship certainly with God but but you know love God the, the two commandments of Christ right you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your neighbor is yourself, right? But care of neighbor is very, very important, and this kind of distancing or isolation um, goes against that. Now, it has to be said that there is, um, there is a rationale behind it, right? I mean, there is a, it's not like we're, we're isolating ourselves because we don't like everybody else or we're scared of everybody else, but, but it's also a protective measure both for other people and ourselves, and certainly because some individuals seem to be infected and they just don't, they're asymptomatic. So, you know, they, they might be spreading the disease like a typhoid Mary person without even realizing it.
0: Super spreaders, especially.
2: Exactly. But, but you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and it's something, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre said that hell is other people, yes. right? It's that non-Christian view that uh, people are the problem. And certainly when I was working in the pro-life movement, you would see these overpopulation nuts, you know, who basically thought that the birth of every baby in the world was a tragedy.
0: Except their own birth,
2: right? Exactly. It's re- re- remarkable, right? But and
0: Sartre it, might have thought his own birth was a tragedy too.
2: Yeah, and it probably was. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it was sad because he ended so badly. But yes. But absolutely, there's this kind of <laughs> sense—a uh, non-Christian sense, you know—that isolation is a good thing, and and our, from our our Christian perspective, uh, we want to be spending ourselves for others and and with others. You know, community is a very important element to the church, but also to society. I mean, the common good is all about working together with others to achieve something good. Well, if you're all isolating and you're all distancing, there's, there's an impediment there, right? It, it cannot be the new normal. It, it, it has to be something exceptional because it, it just doesn't work as social creatures that we are as human beings.
0: As I'm preparing this, um, paper with my co-authors on whether the cure is worse worse than the disease, I've often wondered if instead of just seeing those graphs every day of cases going up and down, of deaths going up and hopefully going down, what if we also saw charts that showed the number of suicides going up, the cardiovascular disease going up from loneliness and other health problems because uh, patients are going to their physician's. Uh, and so many other collateral damage from the social distancing and not going into medical care. Would that change the way that we do this? Might we accept a higher level of coronavirus illness just the same way we accept a a high amount of influenza illness, which, it should be said, does not overwhelm ICUs the way that coronavirus has in some places?
1: I think it would be interesting to to see if if, if the if that data exists and to see what it is. Um, I guess that, that would be my question is do we have data on that? That's what I've and been uh, –
0: I've got 58 articles I've been reading through that do have data on those things. For instance, for every 1% increase in unemployment for a year, there's a 1% increase in the United States for suicide. So there's about 48,000 – let's round it up to 50,000 – Suicides a year in the country. That means for every one percent increase, that's 500 more suicides. If the unemployment goes up 20 percent, that's 10,000 more suicides, for instance. And then there's other examples of just social isolation and loneliness affects on health. And while they are two different constructs, the isolation and the loneliness. One's objective, one's subjective. They both have a thirty percent increase in mortality, especially for those under the age of sixty-five. So I've been gathering all those kinds of data, and it's pretty alarming.
2: Yeah, I mean, another aspect that I saw was uh, increase in alcoholism, right? Alcohol consumption. Uh, uh, probably there's a decrease in drug consumption, illegal drugs, because it's hard to get them. You know, if you can't get out. But uh, but it seems like alcohol is is definitely on the rise, and that could lead to a lot of deaths.
0: And the AA and NA groups are no longer meeting in person. They're meeting online and they don't think those are effective. And uh, what did I read? The suicide prevention hotline is up tenfold, about 900% or 10 times as oh. much as normal. Yeah. So th- there's a number of other things. And cause we just seem so laser focused on, on one piece of data when so many other things are going on in society right now, that's yeah. been one of my biggest underlying concerns interviewing people from a number of different uh, parts of public life. Well, we started talking about vaccines. The other aspect of vaccines is some can be developed morally and some can be developed immorally. What's the status of vaccine development from an ethical viewpoint, Joseph?
2: So basically, we have two categories. Uh, we have cell, cell lines that come, you know, without any ethical taint. And there are other cell lines that come that originated with an aborted child. And those cells were taken and then grown and their descendant cells. Sometimes the abortion took place as far back as the 1960s. But nonetheless, you know, at the origin of that cell line is uh, the the killing of a a preborn child, which is completely unacceptable and, and completely unnecessary. I mean, the thing that I find really, really tragic Uh, And I remember when we had this whole huge embryonic stem cell debate, you know, and and they were talking about, oh, the need, the need to fund all this, you know, embryo destructive research where we're killing human embryos, cannibalizing them for their cells. And, and why, you know, and in the end, of course, it was very bad science. It didn't produce anything good. There was, there was an ideological push You know, we need to bring some good out of this evil. We need to prove that this evil is necessary for cures, is necessary for medicine or science. And it's completely false. So what we have right now, of course, is some companies are trying to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 that are using these, you know, tainted cell lines that originated with an abortion. And there are other companies that are doing it, you know, with completely fine cell lines that have no ethical taint at all. and. Why is that? You know, why can't they just focus on good science based on good ethics? I mean, we wouldn't tolerate, you know, human trials uh, that were far too dangerous or didn't have informed consent. You know, there's a, Nazi science is universally, you know, <laughs> condemned. Yes. The medical medical experimentations. So why is it that there's this um, almost rush, you know, to try and find some good out of abortion? Uh, that well, wow, we can get a vaccine by growing it, you know, in in these stem cell line, in these lines that were attained with an abortion. T- to me, it's very ideological. Joe, do you have anything to add?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with everything Joseph said, and actually, there are people out there who are publishing articles saying that. Well, look, look at all this success, quote unquote, that we've had. <laughs> with the immunizations that we offer you know to children and adults today and and see all of those were developed using these uh these cell lines from aborted children so you know we need this we need more federal funding for this we need to to pursue this research even further and again a fear that i have with what's going on with uh efforts to develop a uh a vaccine for COVID 19 is that you've got companies as joseph said some are using these cell lines some of them are not but particularly if a successful vaccine um, is is developed using these cell lines, it's just it, it's just going to concretize that argument even more that, you know. And we need more of these cell lines. We need you know we we need more of this, and we need uh, taxpayers to uh, to fund it.
0: Some listeners have asked what they can do to encourage companies that are doing it ethically to to work harder and to try to prevent or you know, those companies who are doing it unethically, is there anything that the average uh, Joe and Jane Catholic can do or Joe and Jane pro-life person?
1: Well, one of the things that, um, well, on the individual level, it, it's, it's relatively small. I mean, you know, what can one person do? That's, it, it's a very difficult thing to do. But one of the things that, you know, the Pontifical Academy for Life and the U.S. Catholic bishops have asked organizations to do, particularly um, the Catholic healthcare systems, uh, the CMA, I know the CMA has, has, has actually done this, is to use their clout, their numbers to, uh, to petition, to cajole, to try to push uh, pharmaceutical companies to develop uh, vaccines in ethically responsible ways. So what could an individual do? I, I would say contact, um, maybe contact the CMA, um, actually contact us, because we have some groups um, that we work with that do that. And say, you know, who, and we can pass them on to these groups, and they, and they can contact them and, and lend their voices to these efforts.
0: Excellent. Uh, is there anything else before we change topics that you'd like listeners to know about vaccines?
2: Yeah, well, you know, there's this new vaccine against shingles, Shingrix.
0: Oh, I've gotten the first dose and I'm due for the second one, but I'm waiting a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is a success story, right? Because that oh, huge. was developed specifically with those concerns in mind, right? It, it was developed so that it would be an ethically responsible vaccine as opposed to the alternatives that exist out there. And the company clearly saw that there was a market for this. So it is true you know, that a lot of these companies make their decisions financially, you know, I mean, if they see a market, they will go for it. Something that I thought was very interesting was when Mel Gibson came out with The Passion of the Christ, and that film made $900 million internationally. All these Hollywood studios were like, oh my God, if I make, literally, (laughs) only if if I make a, a religious movie, I can make a boatload of money. And so all of a sudden Hollywood was producing these films about, you know, Noah and the flood and all kinds of other things. There's a a market here, but it's true, right? I mean, we live in this capitalist society and world and companies do respond to economic incentives. So boycotts are important, but also the fact that, you know, if we produce a new vaccine that is ethically responsible, gosh, there's a market for that. I mean, there are a lot of Catholics who are going to order that vaccine and not the competition. Yes, and Catholic (laughs)
0: physicians.
1: And Tom, if I could add just on our website, Mm -hmm. ncbcenter.org, we've got, um, we just put up a statement just last week. It's called COVID-19 vaccines promote life and health without undermining human dignity. And that statement is available on our website so people can go and they can read it. And we also have, if you go to uh, under our resources and our bioethics topics, we have a whole section on vaccines. um, you know, over the years, the number of resources that are put together. So people are more than welcome to come to our website and, uh, and access those materials.
0: You said that's ncbcenter.org. .org. .org, ncbcenter.org. So let's uh, move to drugs. So in a time of pandemic, I think some of the rules do change, not ethically, but with how we research uh, whether drugs are effective or not. What can we do to speed up drug research while still being ethically responsible, Joseph?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the the big problems with drug research, you know, is that it costs so much money. Yes. And there's so much red tape. You know, awesome. there, are, there are so many bureaucratic hurdles to go. And the, the FDA, you know, requires this this phase one and phase two and phase three three, and and yes etc so there's a there's a certain amount of um safeguards that are put into place uh but they they're not really ethical they're more like just bureaucratic things that you know you kind of hoops that you have to jump through and it is completely fine to streamline that to, to to you know fast track certain things when you have a real situation, a real crisis on your hands, what uh, cannot be done, uh, you know, that, the, the worst thing that could be done is to start human trials on a drug that has no safety, you know, we don't know enough about it to know that it's safe, or, you know, at least hope that it's safe for, for human beings, you know, you can't skip past the animal trials, you can't skip past Um, some of these very elementary things that need to be done in terms of of safety testing. But, but I think a lot of the, you know, the, the the speed of a drug trial in a sense, you know, uh, drug development, a lot of it is the resources that are put into it. How many people are, are actually researching it and then how many bureaucratic, you know, delays are involved in getting approvals, et cetera. I think all that other stuff can be sped up quite quickly.
0: So you'd say that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, it would. Sure. Joe.
1: Well, I, I, again, I agree with Joseph. I think there's a couple of a couple other cautions to keep in mind. Here is um, what about informed consent of of the subjects uh, the subjects who are who are receiving these drugs, are and are they being protected? And I guess the question that I would ask in if there's you know if there's going to be a big rush to uh, to you know to fast track these experiments is what's the role of the IRB? You know, what's the role of the Institutional Review Board in terms of overseeing these studies and making sure that patients are, are protected in them?
0: I assume that they're having a lot of meetings of those IRBs. Uh, I mean, I've been, in, I've been in healthcare all over the country, and every place I ever went, the IRB was very stringent. Nobody got past them with anything, which, which was a good thing. So the last topic I'd like to cover is end-of-life decisions. And that has garnered the most calls, you said, from patients uh, recently. Why are they calling about that now?
1: Well, they're calling about that because I think many people are scared. Um, We get, just for numbers, we get about 1,500 consults a year. About 40% of those are end-of-life. And many of those are, you know, what do I do? How do I make end-of-life decisions? So I think the COVID-19 Situation just adds another layer onto those decisions. I mean, you're, especially if you're, you know, you're sitting around, you're isolated, so you're watching TV twenty four seven, and so it it just, it, you know, it, it, it really scares people. I think what we would say in terms of what to do, what people should do for preparing for end of life decisions, is to make sure you've got a healthcare power of attorney. Make sure you've designated someone who can make decisions for you, healthcare decisions if for you when you can't. Uh, make sure that person knows what the church teaches uh, is the person is able to make good decisions. And if that person needs help, you know, making decisions for you to, to know where to go, either, you know, to a parish priest or even call the NCBC um, our, you know we have our 24 seven consultation. In other
0: words, a piece of paper is never enough alone.
1: No, never. In fact, the piece of paper is all, all the piece of paper really does is say, okay, who is this person who's going to make decisions for me? But if the, if you never have a conversation with your decision maker and, you know, tell them, Hey, this is what I'm, this is what I, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. These are my goals. This is how I understand. Um, you know, this is how I understand end of life. Those conversations are absolutely necessary. Um, so that, so that the power of attorney will be able to make decisions for you that are in your best interest when you can't make them yourself.
0: Do you have a sample form that people can use on your website?
1: Uh, we don't on our website, uh, but people can contact us, and we're, you know, we're able to, uh, to get that. Actually, one of the things when people call us up and ask for that, what I normally do is direct them to their state Catholic conference website, because usually, like, say, Tom, you're in the state of Indiana, so the Indiana Catholic Conference will have uh, power of attorney forms on its website, but that power of attorney form is completely congruent with Indiana law which you know, uh, as you are, laws can be different in different states. Yes, so, if you, so if you want a, a form that is faithful to church teaching, but is also going to be, there's not going to be any question whether it's going to be recognized in your particular state, go to the state Catholic conference.
0: Joseph, what would you like to add?
2: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I learned the hard way that uh, we are 50 states Uh, So I'm originally from Texas, I have a Texas driver's license and I had to change it over to the Pennsylvania one.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry.
2: (laughs) And it was the hardest thing to go to the DMV and hours and hours of wait, you know, and I had to bring them my, the original copy of my uh, social security card, you know, et cetera. It it was very interesting. Each state has its own requirements. And and of course, it's the same for, for medical powers of attorney. Yeah. The other thing too, that we see is it's so important to have somebody that you can rely on who's not maybe so emotionally involved. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a terrible, terrible um, emotional decision, right? When a loved one is in the hospital and you're told, gosh, we have to make this decision. And sometimes you don't have very much time even. Right. And, and they're like, you know, we need to know within the next few hours or minutes or whatever. And... To, to be able to reach out to to a priest or to some other person who has a certain certain experience but also a certain detachment from from the situation they're not so emotionally involved is very helpful what what many people thank us for at the ncbc you know they already kind of know which way they should be going a lot of them have a, a kind of a moral sense but they they can't really trust themselves because they're so emotional wow, and and sure. they just want to be confirmed uh, by another person, you know, who's a little bit detached, has some experience in the in the matter, and that's what our ethicists tend to do: is that they say, "Yeah, okay, sure." And have you thought about this? Because sometimes, you know, there's so many different things that they're not even thinking about all the different issues that are out there. Um, and so it's it's good to have um, a little bit of exterior support. You know, we we all need that support, and we also need you know people to be praying for us. Uh, the whole spiritual context is important. One of the things that I frequently tell people. you. I told a person today who called me up. You also have to think about the spiritual state of this person, right? You're making end-of-life decisions, you know, about a do not resuscitate order, about, you know, taking them off of something or etc. But, you know, are they ready to go, you know, spiritually? Have they seen a priest? You know, do, do we want to do everything to keep them alive for the next 24 hours so we can, you know, gather the family? Uh, There there are a lot of like non-medical, strictly medical considerations involved that are key, you know, from our faith. We believe that eternal life is more important than this earthly life. And so in a certain sense, you know, as Catholics, our medical decisions also have this this spiritual component to them. And what the NCBC likes to do is not only give people the ethics, but also, you know, make sure that they're thinking spiritually. Because sometimes, you know, in our modern world, we've kind of put Religion to the side so much that you know we don't even think about calling the priest, and that's perhaps the most important call that needs to be made.
0: Yes, in fact, we had an episode uh, that aired just a few months ago with um, geriatric physician Dr. Peter Morrow from Florida, covering exactly what patients need to do and why. And one of them is that essential spiritual care that must be available and taken care of uh, at the end of life. Uh, what final? ethical things would you like listeners to know, especially regarding the pandemic?
2: Yeah. So I think one of the things that we can all do, and and I've mentioned this myself, right? There's this real tendency to give in to fear and panic you know, and you see that in the hoarding, you know, people going and buying tons of stuff that they don't need, et cetera. And, and it really is a major ethical issue. I mean, we're depriving some people of things that they need. There's a person in our community who needs a certain brand of, uh, of medical drink. I forget exactly what it's called, but anyway, it had been completely bought out and they were not able to get it. Uh, you know, and it, you know, it's the sort of thing that they need with the potassium and whatever else is yes. involved in it. Well, you know, some person had really committed an injustice by taking this stuff that they didn't really need and depriving another person who really needed it. So I think it's important to think about some of these issues. We can love our neighbor in many different ways, but one of the ways we can do is, is by going without a little bit, you know, uh, of this kind of overcompensation, right? There's, a, there's a tendency when you, when you're making panicky decisions to, to make bad decisions And and to make selfish decisions, but we have a certain certain need, I think, in this crisis to show courage, but also to show selflessness, to to go out of ourselves to help others. And I think that's an important lesson for all of us. You know, we need to be generous, and we need to be thinking about others uh, rather than to be turning inward and away from other people. And and that's one of the problems with the social isolation, right? Is is it kind of encourages people to go this kind of selfish route? as opposed to having a, a more other focused view. So I think, you know, the general ethics of it are important. And then the other thing too is the, the spiritual side, right? I mean, we can't get to mass necessarily. And, and it's very sad to see that. I think there's only one diocese in the U.S. right now that is holding public mass. Las
0: Cruces, New Mexico. Isn't
2: that amazing? But, but, but we can all pray, right? We, we have that capacity. We have more time in a certain sense, and we have more resources uh, where we can go online, uh, you know, the Divine Mercy Novena that is about to conclude right now. But there, there's so many different opportunities and so many people in need. We have to think about others and pray for them and pray for all the courageous people, you know, who are having to go to work in dangerous situations, uh, who may be in a worse situation than we are. Well, most of us are, are probably in a lucky situation where we're not in that much personal danger. Well, you know, we have to be thinking about these others, um, and and that I think is how we come out of this in a better spiritual state than what we went in. Joe, what
0: final comments
2: would you like to make?
1: Just I guess, quote what we see in Scripture over and over again. And John Paul II said in in his many speeches, particularly back in his home land of Poland, "Be not afraid. Be not afraid of this. Um, God is here. God is in charge. God knows what's going on." Um, Yes, this life is important, but what's really important is eternal life. And maybe this is a time, as you know, as, as Cardinal Sarah said in an inter- interview with a, a with a French magazine a few or, you know, a few days ago. He said, you know, this this whole pandemic should really make us stop and think. You know, we we thought as a as a people that we, you know, with our technology and everything else, that that you know we are you know we're it. We are the greatest. You know, greatest things in sliced bread. Absolutely. But what this pandemic is demonstrating to us is that, you know what, we're not. Um, And I think what hopefully will come out of this is maybe there'll be a greater sense of our humanity, Um, hopefully a greater sense that people will recognize the divine and the need for the divine, and maybe, and building upon what Joseph said, maybe a, a greater commitment on the part of people to live out the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, because that's what we need.
0: Well, let's give the promised answer to the trivia question that Joe requested. Remember, the question was, what infectious disease that had an outbreak in Bledgam Hospital in Copenhagen, Denmark in 1952, led to the development of the ventilator outside of the, uh, the surgical ward? And uh, you guys might have peeked at the answer. Did any of you, did either of you know the answer to this question?
2: No. No.
1: Did, did you, Joe? I had no idea.
0: Okay, the disease was often treated with iron lungs, which was an external ventilator, which would suck air out like a vacuum from the sides of the chest so that the chest would expand and bring air in. And then they'd relax that vacuum and it would go out. Those people were paralyzed high in the brainstem by polio. So that is one of the reasons polio vaccine is so important. And what was fascinating is that during this outbreak, they saw these people who were getting infected in their brainstem, and they were dying at huge rates because of respiratory failure. So they got this anesthesiologist, Bjorn Ibsen, was on their staff, and he had just trained at Mass General in Boston. And what he recommended was giving all these patients a tracheostomy, putting a little hole in their trachea in the front of their um, neck, and then they put tubes down it. But guess what? They didn't have mechanical ventilators. So you know what they did for several months is they had medical students from the area in six hour shifts around the clock, ventilating these patients and where hundred percent of them would die. Only 31% of them died after that. And then they developed the mechanical ventilator so that the medical students didn't have to sit there around the clock to save lives. I thought that was just a fantastic story.
1: I hope those medical students got extra credit. <laughs>
0: I would have given it to them. <laughs> so, for more information on this topic, your website, National Catholic Bioethics Center, is ncbcenter.org, correct? Correct. Is correct. Joseph and Joe, thank you so much for being with us today on Dr. Doctor. Thank you to all our listeners for being with us, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Please invite them to listen and rate our podcast. They can do it on one of their favorite apps or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
1: Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.
0: Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot?